0: Paul has sought to emphasise certain truths in this central part of his letter. He's emphasised that the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ is the fulfilment of God's promise given to Abraham and is to be received by faith. Our keeping of God's law plays no part in our being saved. And so that does raise an obvious question what is the point of the law and does it have any relevance or bearing upon us today well first of all briefly let's clarify what we mean by the law because it can mean a few different things it can mean the entire Word of God the whole of the Bible it can ...means specifically that body of law given to Moses in the Old Testament. Uh, That law, much of which was for the nation of Israel, but which began with the Ten Commandments, which is for everybody. But then it also included regulations for worship, the construction of the tabernacle, everything that was within it and part of the worship in Old Testament days and all the civil laws which governed them as a nation. Now, in the way that these Jewish believers were speaking about the law, they were meaning primarily the Ten Commandments, plus all of those things to do with worship and acceptance before God by keeping yourself clean and pure and undefiled. Uh, including the the observance of circumcision. Now, whether they went quite as far as the Pharisees did, with many man-made laws tacked on the end, probably not, but certainly requiring a considerable amount of compliance with Old Testament law. Now, however wide or narrow their list of laws were that they seemed to insist upon, it will have left many in Paul's day, and indeed many today, wondering what exactly is the relationship of the Christian to the law. But before we get to the text, it's, it's important to remember that Paul has been talking about that which is necessary to become a Christian. What it is that's required in order that you might be born again and be recognised as being a Christian at all. He's He's been talking about the law in relation to justification. Can I put myself in right standing before God by means of keeping the law? And Paul is saying an emphatic no. Now, you do need to remember, of course, that once a person is saved, there is a standard of life that is expected and required of them by God. You cannot become a Christian and then just live any way you like, any how you like. You have to live such a life as pleases God as one who now is accepted by him. God expects and requires you at the very least to take seriously what we call his moral law, as it's summarized in the 10 commandments. And indeed we're told that the new nature that you have as you are converted, it means that this law, excuse me, this law is written in your heart you're also exhorted to read and study God's word and hide it in your heart that you might not sin against him. Paul is constantly exhorting believers to put off sinfulness and unrighteousness and pursue godliness and holiness. Now that's speaking about doing that which is right and pleasing God in the work of sanctification as a Christian and that most certainly has a place but that's not the theme here what we're thinking about here is the place of the law in justification does the law have any role to play in that well actually yes it does says Paul but you need to be careful to understand exactly what the role of the law is and where it begins and where it ends. And that's Paul's main theme in these verses here that we're looking at this evening. So what does Paul teach us? Well, first of all, he says, the law reveals our sinfulness, starting at verse 19. The law was added till the seed, Christ, should come. And God revealed his law for a reason. And that reason was to spell out clearly the sinfulness of our sins. The law of God leaves us in no doubt that we are transgressors. We have disobeyed and broken the law of God. Now, you and I know what it is to feel guilt and shame. But those emotions in themselves don't make it clear what that is actually doing in terms of our relationship with God. We can feel that a certain thought or action or spoken word is wrong. We learn all too readily that sometimes those things can have unpleasant consequences... In terms of our relationships with each other. But how does that actually relate to God. If at all. Does any of that. Any of those things which cause us to feel shame and guilt. Do any of those things have any consequences as far as God is concerned. Well God gave us his law. To show us that all of those things which prick our conscience do so because whatever that is that's going on inside of me that's producing those feelings, all of that actually has its basis in God's moral code which accords with God's own nature and character. It's on account of us from the beginning having been made in God's image. And God spells out in his law what it is that he requires and demands and it impresses upon me just how far short of that I fall and just how sinful I really am and how completely impotent I am to try and do something about it. The law of God doesn't suggest that it might be quite a good idea to try and live a little bit more like this. The law of God says that as far as God is concerned, this is the only acceptable way that a man or woman should live. But you, look at you, you don't and you can't. God has given his law, not so that by it I might be saved, but that by it I might see and understand just how guilty I am of disobedience and transgression and just how badly I need to be saved. Because in my natural sinfulness, my proud heart wants to insist that I'm really not so bad. I know I'm not an angel, but as sin goes, I'm in that group of people that are only sinful by the smallest of margins, is what my my proud heart wants to tell me. Now, to present the gospel as if it is primarily about enhancing your lot in the world and to improve your experience of life in this world, To present the gospel as being the ultimate anxiety buster and well-being provider is to completely misrepresent the gospel. Now, I don't deny for one moment that coming to Christ will change your life for the better. But it's usually only as a Christian that you can truly understand and appreciate how those changes have been for the better. Because those kinds of things actually don't necessarily appeal to the unbeliever. In the eyes of an unbeliever, what your life goes from and to when you're saved doesn't necessarily make a whole lot of sense. Nor does it necessarily carry a great deal of attraction. Counting all that they have gained in this world as loss for the sake of Christ is probably for them the dumbest thing they've ever heard. Because they are still dead and blind and deaf in their sins. In their sinful nature, they cannot comprehend these things. And to be honest, when it comes to dealing with anxiety, and when it comes to trying to achieve some sort of well-being, in their sin and in their lostness, they think they've found far more exciting ways of trying to achieve that. At least, that's how it seems to them. But the Bible does make it plain That the gospel actually is all about confronting people. Confronting people with the reality of their sin and of their need of salvation. So much so, says Paul, that that is precisely why God gave his law. To reveal the extent of our sinfulness and to show us our need of salvation Because none of us are only a little bit sinful. And because in his law, God also reveals to us the penalty for our sins. Which is far worse than we think we deserve. But God's law is real. His justice is real. His judgment is real. The punishments are real and they are just. And your need of salvation and mine is real. that's why the law was given. Now at the end of verse nineteen and into verse twenty, Paul continues in contrasting the law with the promise that had already been given. The giving of the law does nothing to change or alter the promise that had been given four hundred and thirty years beforehand that's the gap between Abraham to whom the promise was given and Moses to whom the law was given and the law has been given says Paul until the seed of that promise Christ is come and the promise is greater than the law he says the law came through a mediator Moses, he's talking about. Now, um, a mediator does not mediate for one only, verse 20. A mediator stands between two parties and acts as a mediator, a go between between the two. A mediator is what a mediator does, goes between the two. But God is one. And the promise that God gave is different. The promise comes directly from God. He has declared his covenant for himself. And it stands. And the covenant found in the law. Lays down conditions on both sides. And the law requires our perfect obedience to it. The promise however concerning the seed requires only that God will do what he has promised to do. And that you then receive and believe it by faith. The question is, have you seen by means of the law your sinfulness and your guilt before this most holy God. That you have not loved God, given him first place in your life, made him your first love, worshipped him only. That in your heart there is all kinds of selfishness and pride and jealousies and covetousness. That Jesus said even to think angry thoughts against someone is to murder them in your heart. Just to look at someone with lust in your heart is to be guilty of adultery. Do you see your need of salvation? Do you see that you need that which God has promised in Jesus Christ? Because all the law can ever do All the law was ever intended to do was enable you to see and know and feel your guilt and your shame as one who has transgressed the perfect law of a holy God. And secondly, the law reveals our helplessness. Does the law somehow stand in contradiction to the promise of God? Verse 21. Absolutely not. If God had given a law which everyone could keep, then you would have a case to say that it either replaced the promise or was an alternative to the promise. If God had said, if you can't wait for the promise, do this instead, and gave us a law which we could keep and which did bring salvation, which did bring us new life, then you could argue that you can make yourself righteous by keeping the law. But, verse 22, that is not what God has done. The law shows us that we are all indeed held in bondage and captivity. By our sin and in our sin. And that our only hope is the seed of the promise. Christ. To those who believe. Because it is to be by faith. Paul says the law acts a bit like a prison cell. To show us that in ourselves we have no means of escape. And the promise of the seed The promise of Christ is the key that will set you free. We live in an age of self-love, self-esteem, self-worth. Time and again, you can hear on uh, chat shows and such like, so-called celebrities speak of some deep personal time of trouble they've been through. And to recover, they've been through therapy and rehabilitation. And what were they taught there? They were told that the reason for their anxiety and depression is because you've got yourself into a place where you loathe yourself and you think you're worthless. So the answer is to learn to love yourself again. To convince yourself that you are of value and worth. To esteem yourself. I am of worth. And I'm going to live my life for me. So who cares what any of you think? I love me. Even if you don't. I am happy with me. Even if you're not. And That's all that matters. That's the philosophy that so many follow. And if we're not careful, you see, that way of thinking trickles into the church so that church needs to be all about making people feel good about themselves. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. If they are to feel anything about anyone, they are to feel good about Christ. And feel rotten about themselves. The Gospel flies in the face of the philosophy of the world. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a. a what? Saved a what? A wretch." No, 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 you're not a wretch, says the world. How dare anyone suggest that you are. You're wonderful, you're amazing, you're lovely. So which of those two positions is correct, do you think? Dear Christian friends, dear unsaved ones who may be listening, the law of God is given to make you see just how much of a wretch you really are. And how wonderful, how amazing, how lovely is the seed of the promise, the Lord Jesus Christ who came to save a wretch like me. And now anything good about me is all about him. And grace will lead me home. The other week we sang Charles Wesley's great hymn, And Can It Be? In what way do those great old hymns And the great new ones, like In Christ Alone, and all the others from that uh, modern stable of good hymn writers. In what way do any of those great hymns speak of my self-worth, my self-love, my self-esteem? Such nonsense is to be found nowhere. Let's go back to Wesley's hymn for a moment. Died he for me who caused his pain. Did you hear that? Have you sung that? You are the cause of Christ's suffering. You, you wretch of a man or a woman. If it wasn't for you, Jesus would never have had to suffer. He left his father's throne above, so free and infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love and bled and died for Adam's helpless race. That's us. Did you hear that? Have you sung that? You're not just a wretch. You're a helpless wretch. Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast Bound in sin and nature's night. That's the work of the law of God, holding you in your sinfulness, convincing you of your sinfulness, where there's just darkness and coldness and night. Your God's eye diffused a quickening, an enlivening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. Did I find that light inside myself somewhere to help me start to love and value and esteem myself again? No. No, my soul is only darkness. I need a light from outside of myself. I need the light of God to burst into my soul. I need the seed of the promise to come and unlock the door of my prison cell and set me free. My chains did fall off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and I loved me. No, that's the world's way. I didn't. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Because now my life isn't about me. It's all about him. No condemnation now I dread. Why would anyone sing that? Because that's where you used to be, a guilty, condemned wretch of a man or woman, deserving everything that was coming your way. But how is it now? Oh, it's oh so different now. Jesus And all in him is mine. Alive in him. My living head and clothed with righteousness divine. My life is not about me. My goodness is not my own. It is the goodness of Christ laid around my shoulders. Don't applaud me for the way I've turned around my life. Because I haven't. Because I couldn't. I could never have turned my life around. Never saved myself. Never improved myself. Never found something inside me worth loving. Where's the self-love, self-esteem, self-worth in any of the hymns like that? It's nowhere. Why? Because that nonsense has no place in the gospel of Christ and the life and testimony of a Christian. You needed the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your only hope. He needs to be your life. Any goodness ever to be seen in you will be his goodness to his praise and glory. This is the life-saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We preach Christ, the promised seed, and him crucified so that he could save a wretch like me. Paul is getting these Galatian believers and us to view this gospel of promise from all kinds of different angles to show that no matter which way you come at it, you'll always arrive back at the same point. The law reveals the true and full reality of sin and there is only one solution, which is to believe and to claim that promise by faith which is revealed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul concludes this section by reiterating the fact that the law shows us our need of Christ. From verse 23 through to the end of the chapter. Verse 24. The law is our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith you've heard of well-to-do families who hire nannies and maybe a governess to raise and educate their children mary poppins and nanny McPhee, all that kind of stuff well in greek society in new testament days and in other cultures too um, young men would be tutored and in greek society they'd have a a man called a paidagogos He was a senior slave uh, employed by the father to look after his son Uh, he would act as a tutor and a governor to teach and discipline that son until he reached the age of responsibility now as a son he would be an heir to his father's estate he would be the heir who would receive an inheritance from all that the father owns But in those formative early years, his father would have little to do with him. Uh, And even even though he is an heir, legally, he's actually treated uh, just like one of the slaves. And he's actually under the authority of a slave in the household. So his experience uh, is not what you might expect uh, the the son of a well-to-do man to be. But it all has a purpose you see. It's all making him ready for a particular day. Appointed by his father. When he would come of age. He would step out from under his tutor. And be formally received by his father as his son. Presented to society as his son and heir. And he would enter into all the privileges and of sonship. And his life now would be radically transformed. And he would actually live out the experience of being a son for the very first time. And this is the illustration that Paul takes hold of in verses 23 to 26. The law is acting as your tutor in order to make you see your great need of Christ. And you come to him through faith. So that you step out from under the law... As something that you think might be able to save you and you come to Christ instead and you stop being a slave to sin, but you become a child of God. Paul says more about this theme in chapter four as he continues and we'll return to that next week and look at that in a bit more detail. That's the illustration that he uses. And this is the gospel that saves. This is the gospel that has to be preached. Learning to love and value and esteeming myself, that's not the answer. What I'm actually to do is despise myself in my sin and love and value and esteem Christ and run to him and cling to him and trust in him and find my life in him. Have you done that? That's the only answer and the only hope for everyone, says Paul. Jew, Greek, slave, free, male or female, it matters not. All are made one in Christ Jesus. 4,000 years ago, God gave a promise to Abraham. A vast nation Greater in number than the stars in the the sky or the sand on the seashore. The household of God. The one true spiritual Israel of God. The church of Christ. A blessed nation. Not because of a law given. But because of a promised seed. Christ. A promise given a promise kept, a free gift of salvation offered to be received in repentance of your sins and by faith. Such love, such grace and mercy. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift.